0: As Tim was saying, we got to visit a church last week, and so many of you guys know, my, me, my wife, and my daughter, we got to go on vacation. And I don't know if you ever had one of those vacations where you were so looking forward to because you were tired and you had all this expectation. It's going to be the most restful and exhilarating thing, and you're looking so forward to it. So I had all those hopes and expectations, and by day one, they went downhill quickly. <laughs> So as they went downhill, I was like, all right, I'm hoping this isn't going to be a bad time, a bad vacation, because we had changed so much of our plans because of just, it was just a long past couple months, and even had an ankle injury, so we canceled one of our trips to end up doing something different. And so for part of our trip, we went out to Clearwater, and while we were out there, we decided we were like, all right, for our anniversary on that Thursday, we wanted to find a church where we can go and just listen to service or seeing whatever that may be out there. So as we were researching, we got to, on Acts 29, we got to find only one church. And it was the only church that had any kind of weekday service. And so I went online, I saw the website. It said, um, worship, Thursday night, 645. I didn't know exactly what it was. I thought it was only singing, because I'm like, normally people talk about worship. It's normally something of singing. So I was like, all right, we're just going to go and sing. So we go there, and we get there, and we were hesitant when we first got there, because one of the stories of our brothers, who had not such a great experience, So we were very hesitant as we got there, but as we went in the door, um, there was a lady named Laura who just welcomed us and hugged us, and honestly, she reminded me of Tammy. She was just so joyful and just really caring for us and wanting to know where we had came from, and so it started off perfect. And then as we transitioned around, we were just getting to talk to people, and they were encouraging us and talking to us and getting to know us. And so as we went inside, we got seated, and we were waiting for the service, me and my pastoral brain, I had a bunch of questions for the deacons and the elders, and Wanted to talk about my observation. So I got up to find one of the guys to ask questions about the service and all kinds of stuff. And so while I was gone, my wife Breeze, she was sitting by herself, and one of the elders came up to her while she was there and just checking on her, seeing how she was doing. You noticed a new face and just wanted to see if she was doing okay. And that was another encouragement because I understand what it is when we're going into a new place and you feel alone and you have somebody just come and just saying, How are you doing? What's your name? And so that was another encouragement. And so then as the service began, they began to go through their song set. And as they finished up, the guy who was leading worship, he ended his prayer with Psalm 46.1. He just said it in his own words. And I was like, hmm, what is he? where did he get that from? I was wondering if it was just on his mind or whatever it may be. So I was like, all right, I'm going to ask him about that afterwards. <laughs> so as the service started, they had a little video of what they were doing through their sermon series. And then as the video ended, the guy who was the worship leader was actually the pastor. So I was like, that was interesting. And so as he gets up, he was talking about them, and they're going through their series. And they're going through a series about essentially these weird Christian sayings that we say. And the one in particular he was talking about was essentially of where you're, whenever you're in the will of God, you're safest in the will of God, this kind of God won't give you more than you can handle, a lot of that kind of Christianese. And as he began to preach, he said that they had been going through the Psalms for the past three weeks, which was, that got my ears perked up, and then, and then the providence of God. The next thing he said, and tonight they're going to be in Psalm 46. And as I sat there, I turned to breathe, and I was just in shock and awe, and I'm like, there's no way possible that this could have happened, that we picked this random church, that we couldn't have planned this out, we weren't supposed to be on this particular vacation path, and lo and behold, we're sitting here listening to a guy preach the very passage that I'm getting ready to preach in the next three days. And so as I sat there and I was thinking through so much of stuff, and I did take one thing from him that I'll share later. But as I said, <laughs> hey, listen, I was, I was, at least I'm honest. At least I'm honest. I'll make sure to attribute it to him. And if he ever hears this, he knows. But it was, it was encouraging sitting there just seeing a different personality and just seeing come to the same conclusions about the word of God. Somebody I never met, never knew and just see him preaching the word of God and the conclusions he came to, and so after we got to talk to them and it was encouraging. and just got to let them know like how encouraged we were as brothers and sisters in Christ to them because that was our first time, my first time, as getting to visit as a pastor to another church, and so getting to observe and just be able to worship God for what He was doing there. And so I know that may seem like okay, that's cool, you know, it's just the providence of God, but for me in particular, that means a lot. Because with my personality, there's something I I enjoy about just seeing God's providence and sovereignty and things that we would call coincidence, but actually knowing that God's hand was in that. And so in that time, the Lord was just opening my eyes and reminding me that he was a very present help in time of need. That that was refreshing, and it was life-giving to my soul just knowing that he hears me, knowing that he cares, knowing that he knows how to reach me in that particular way. And so we left and we were just amazed and awed at how we could not have planned this out and everything we thought we were doing in our own direction and steps and just knowing that God was the one just dictating, orienting our steps so that we may be refreshed. And so that's where we find ourselves today in Psalm 46, as we're going to get to see as the sons of Korah are praising God, this song of triumph, of triumph of having confidence in God who is their refuge and their strength. And they're very present help in time of need. And as we go through this passage, we're going to see something stand out more and more. And I pray and hope as you're going through this passage, your confidence is building. And it comes to this crescendo at the end of the chapter. And we're going to see how here, because God is the Lord of hosts, who keeps covenant with broken people, that we can be confident in his protection and help in times of need. So let's open up to Psalm 46, so we're going to be starting in verse 1, and it'll be up on the screen. So Psalm 46, starting in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So I'm going to open us up in prayer. Lord, what a wonderful thing it is to be able to read your word before your people. And to hear your word read. To see you manifest yourself through your scriptures. To put words on the lips of the psalmist's that they may praise you and have confidence in you. And by that, calling us to do the same. So forgive us, Lord, when our hearts fail, when you make it evident that we are not trusting in you, and yet we go in our own direction. We find comfort in other things. We try to build barns and houses, knowing that at any day, it may be over for us. Help us not to put all of our security and our trust and our protection and our resources, but to put them in the refuge, the fortress, the strength, and the very present help that you are. And so, Lord, I pray as we go through this passage today that we may leave as a confident people, not shrinking back from what's in front of us, and not because we are so bold or so strong. But the God that is in the midst of us will protect us. We shall not be moved. And so we praise you for what you have done. We praise you for what you are doing now. And we praise you for what you are going to do in the future as we remain confident in you and your protection and your goodness and your mercy. It's in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. So as we begin in Psalm 46, there's a little bit of debate of the context of what it is, but I believe this to be in context with Second Kings chapter 18 and 19. So essentially what's going on here is the Syrians in the prior chapters have just taken over Israel. They've gone to them, they've had them pay tribute. They decided to seek counsel from Egypt and protection from them, and the Assyrian king at that time took them over. So then this same trend comes now to Judah. So they come to Judah also and desiring to do the same thing by the king of Sennacherib. Forgive me if I say that wrong. So he comes up against Jerusalem, and he has the same exact thing. He makes them pay this massive tribute to a point where they had to strip the temple of God of all the gold and silver to give him this massive tribute. And then it continues on with some of his messengers come to them and he's saying to them, the messenger is saying to them that essentially you are foolish for seeking counsel in Egypt. Do you not know what we did to them? And then it continues on with them mocking the Lord by saying your God is not going to save you. Nothing can come out of the power of their hands. And so there's this boastful king coming against the people of Israel. First, they abide by it. Then they try to seek counsel in Egypt, and finally Hezekiah tears his clothes and covers his head in ashes and is crying out to the Lord. And so he sends for the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah sends back this prophecy from the Lord saying that he is going to take care of this, that he is going to destroy his people, and they only have to be confident in him. And so that's where I believe we are in this of Psalm 46, the context of the people of Israel celebrating what the Lord has done, that they were surrounded, had no hope, no chance to defeat this enemy, but yet their God was their protection and fought the battle that they could not fight. And so that's where we begin in chapter 46, starting in verse 1. So 46 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So the first thing we get to recognize is who this God is, who our God is, and who the sons of Korah are identifying him as. So there's three things. He is their refuge, he is their strength, and he is their help, their very present help in time of need. So these are pretty simple in what they're getting at, starting off with their refuge. He's saying that God is their defense, their defense against the enemy that is against them. And so that's where they find their safety and their protection is in their God. And then he's continuing on and saying how God is their strength, their offense, that when it comes time for them to have to stand before what is coming, to stand before the enemies, it is God that strengthens them. And that lastly, he is their very present help in time of need. And in this one, we get multiple things going on here. The first one is the presence of God with his people. We see that God is not afar off. He's not sleeping. He's not slumbering. He's not confused to what's going on or just telling them to figure it out. But he said he's very present. It's saying he's so close, he's so near to them in their time of need. And in here we get multiple things of knowing that first that God desires to help his people. We also get out of this that his help is good that it's not just useless help or somebody that doesn't know what they're doing but he knows exactly what he's doing he knows how to help them how to comfort them and then the last part in the time of need and that's the part that's most difficult for us Is a lot of times we can feel like so many different things are a time of need we feel like God why aren't you here working in this particular situation why don't you hurry up I'm struggling don't you see but we see here that God knows the time when it is to intervene, when he desires to do with what he does, desires to do. And the psalmist is going to bring us that crescendo at the end of us being still before the Lord. So let's continue on into verse 2. So in verse 2 he says, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Let's read Verse 3 also, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So the psalmist helps us to come to the logical conclusion of what he said from the before. If God is our refuge, he is our strength, and he is our very present help in the time of need, then we should not fear. Fear. And that is what it is for us is in the light of who God is, we are not to fear. And what's encouraging about this is it just reminds us of how important it is for us to know who God is. And this is why me and Tim a lot of times will talk about spending time in the scripture, spending time getting to know who God is. It's not just for the information. It's not just to fill our heads up with knowledge. It's for this very reason. The only way we can live according to him is if we know who he is. And though in scripture reading is not everything, you're not going to just read scripture and then everything is good, but you cannot know him, you cannot love him, you cannot learn of him without him revealing himself to us, and that's what he's done in his word. So it is not sufficient for all, but it is necessary for us to know and love God is through his word. And so this is so important as we're seeing that the reason why they're able to not fear is because of the truth of, who God is, and so the question is for us then: So why do we still fear? We have so much resources, we have so much good theology. We're able to state the truth succinctly. We're able to proclaim it, post it on Facebook, Instagram, or whatever else. But yet we still fear. And I think what the psalmist is telling us here is because those things are not true to us. It's because we aren't finding God as our refuge. We don't see him as our strength, and we don't believe he's present with us in times of need. And many times we can find our refuge and our strength in other things. One of the easiest things for us to do that with is with our finances. So on one end of it, if you have, then it's, all right, I'm secure because I've saved enough, I've done enough, so I'm secure for the future. Or on the other end of it, if I don't have it, well, then once I get it, then I'll be secure, then I'll be at peace, then I'll be good once I get that thing. And we do this with so many different things. When we have it, we feel like that's where our trust is. When we don't, we feel like that's what will make us secure. And the psalmist tells us that that is not the truth. And as he continues on in giving a couple of different situations, he says, they will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. And so... As we look at that first one of though the earth gives way, he says, you will not fear though the earth gives way. And so I thought this was interesting that that's the first one they used. And so Tim got to talk about this a couple weeks ago about the sons of Korah and their history. So the sons of Korah are obviously from their father, Korah. And Korah is most famous for his rebellion. He and a couple other guys built up a rebellion against Aaron and Moses because they desired to do what Aaron was doing. And so they were envious and they felt like they, why didn't they have that right? And so then you see this back in number 16 that they go through this time of rebellion and it gets to the point where now they're confronted and Moses stands before them and essentially says, if the ground swells them up, then God is affirming what Moses and Aaron are standing upon versus what the sons of Korah and the other guys who uh, went along with, I mean Korah and the other guys that went along with them. And so what ends up happening is the ground opens up, the earth gave way, and they all fell through. And we see that this is also still a stain upon this family's name because even in Jude, we see Jude referencing us not to be like Korah who rebelled, or like the rebellion of Korah. And so what I found this to be interesting is in something that would have been so present to their mind that they would have known this is the history of their family, something that was so devastating against their family, but yet they still say, we're not going to fear, we're going to trust God, even though this has happened to our very own family, we still will put our confidence and trust in God. And so what a beautiful thing to see with the sons of Korah, at their, having devastation done to their own family, of God judging rightly, and they're still praising him despite that. And so then as we continue on, it says, though the mountains be moved into the sea. And so we see in both of these that they are destruction, almost apocalyptic apocalyptic, um, literature. As we see just this destruction, this upheaval, everything turning upside down. And the point that the psalmist is getting here is though everything that you see is stable. We don't think too much times of the earth giving way. We don't think of the seas roaring over until it t- comes time for that. But those are normally signs of stability, signs, signs of comfort. And he's saying, though all of this may be moved, we will not fear. And so what he's telling us here is, though everything may shift, may the ground be moved from underneath your feet, we can trust and not fear because of who our God is. And that's a real reality for us in Florida where there are hurricanes that come, and especially as we were out in Clearwater, we are getting to talk to them like, that was a real reality for them of being on the beach, of when Hurricane, I think it was Irma in 2017. And it was just that reminder of that it is God who protects us because those waters can take us over with no hesitation, and they have to many. And so we see that even in the chaos of our earth, being destroyed, our earth in upheaval. Everything that we see as stable being flipped upside down. And we see that also in our personal lives. We have losses of loved ones when our health is failing, when our resources are dwindling, and we're feeling like everything is giving way. And there's this desire in us to fret, to be afraid, to be scared, to try to figure something out, to find our refuge in some other way as we saw with Hezekiah where he started off by trying to abide by what the king of Assyria was doing. Then he tried to find his refuge in Egypt. And then he finally came to the Lord. And so we often go through that same kind of progression. Where it's like, all right, I'll figure it out myself. All right, let me go find help from somebody I know is not a good help. And until the Lord just breaks it all down to the point where we have to just come before him. And My prayer for myself, for you guys, for us collectively is that that starts in the reverse. That we start at that beginning of, God, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to fix this situation. I can't fix this situation. Everything seems to be giving way. Everything seems to be falling down. Everything I found as stable and secure seems to be giving way. Help me not to fear. Help me to put my trust in you. And so we see this is how the psalmist begins in these first three voices three verses of showing who our God of conf- uh, our God is that we have confidence in. and So let us now move on to verse 4. So in verse 4, he begins, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. So let's start off in verse 4. Actually, let's start off with that Selah. I just want to explain that quickly. So there's an unsurety of what Selah means, but there's a general understanding and belief that it's a moment of pause and a musical interlude because the Psalms, especially this one, it tells us clearly that it was to be played to music. And I actually enjoy the way that this one is broken up by the Selahs because you see this transition with each one. And so in verse 1 through 3, then 4 through 7, and then 8 through 11, we see it broken up by this, almost this pause and this break in between it. And so now we've just come from the waters are raging the waters are foaming. Everything is giving way. And then it transitions so beautifully. Or he says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And so this river, we have to see it in, in here. And in the place that it's put It's in direct contrast to the violence and the chaos of the nature before. And we see that with the people of God in the city of God, there is this river that makes, glad, that makes them glad. And so in Jerusalem... They did not have a physical river. And so this is probably pointing to two different things. So one of them would have been, Hezekiah had, um, had a tunnel built from the springs of Gihon, and it was meant to go through and come through and come to the Pool of Siloam. And so the point of that was for probably what they were going through at that time of a siege. Because during a siege, they would entrap you from all sides and essentially was to starve you out or for your resources to dwindle. And so it's this beautiful picture of this water flowing in and still giving them life. But it also has some allusions towards the future. And so I want you guys to turn. They won't be up on the screen. So it's going to be in Ezekiel 47, verses 7 through 12. As we see Ezekiel having this vision of the temple. And we're also going to look at Revelations 22, verses 1 through 3 after. Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 7 through 12. So let's see what does Ezekiel say about this river from the temple, from, this, from the city of God. So after he's, in the first couple of verses, Ezekiel's got to go out with this man who has a measuring rod, and he's measuring, going into this water. Now he's come back, and he's getting to observe the water. And this is the conclusions that he speaks of. So starting in verse 7. He says as I went back I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other and he said to me this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down to the Arabia and enters the sea when the water flows into the sea the water will become fresh and wherever the river goes every living creature that swarms will live and there will live and there will be very many fish For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, from Engedi to Engelium. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water from them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And so we see Ezekiel having this vision of what the river is flowing from the temple. So now let's turn to Revelation 22 as we get more information on this river and it coming from the temple. So in Revelations 22, starting in verse 1. So it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Amen. And so we see as this river he's speaking of is the grace of God, as God is providing life for them. And we get allusion to this in the future we saw in this vision of Ezekiel. We see in Revelations that it brings healing And he says, this is the river that makes them glad. The city of God is glad in God's provision of life. And we realize that reality, too, by his life-giving spirit. He says, waters will flow from us. And there's illusions towards water that are so beautiful in scripture. And we see the psalmist praising God about this. That though there's this destruction and death and desolation going on with the earth, there is peace and life-giving water for the people of God in the holy habitation of the Most High. So we continue on to verse 5. So in verse 5 it says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. So (laughs) when I read this passage, I had this kind of cliche movie moment in my mind. So you ever seen a movie where there's somebody who's getting bullied, and they say, I'm going to go get my dad or somebody so much bigger than me. And then they come back, and whoever that person is goes and fights their battles, and they're confident because of who is fighting it for them. And I was reminded of that in this passage of the reason why they were not able to be moved is because of God who protected them, the God who was in the midst of them. And that's the place that we are in as the child who is scared, the child who has no ability to fight against their enemies but is our God who protects us. This is why they have such confidence, is because their God is in the midst of them. And we have that same confidence because our God is in the midst of us. And he continues on by saying God will help her when morning dawns. And so when the morning dawns, especially in a time where there is no lights, it's not as easy to turn on a light. But in this time of darkness, going into, coming out of the morning, that was a time of vulnerability. That was a time when some would have been awake, some would have not. But the beautiful thing is God helps us when we are most vulnerable. And he protects his people during that time, that they could sleep in peace. And we see often, as the psalmist talks about, being able to lie down and rest in peace because his God protects him. And so in this same way, it is showing that God is in the midst of her defending her. And he is also protecting her when she is at her most vulnerable, as he's speaking about the people of God. And that is the trust and hope that we have is in this God. And so, as we stand, we can stand confidently because unless there's somebody who can defeat God, who can overthrow him, who is more powerful than him, who is wiser than him, if if there is somebody who can do that then they can stop him, but we know that is not true. And so because of that, we can have confidence because the only way for the enemies of God to overthrow God's people is they would have to overthrow God himself. And so we have trust and faith in him in that. So now let's continue on to another contrast from God's people being in peace and dwelling in safety and what the psalmist explains of the nations in verse 6. So he says, The nations rage... The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. So again, we have this move from stability, peace, to chaos and instability. And so the people of God dwell in safety because their God is protecting them. And they are able to not be moved. But the nations, they're raging. Their kingdoms are tottering. They're swaying. And so we see this contrast with the people of God versus the nations that are incensed against God. And so one of the hard things about going back to the Old Testament is often we can kind of read ourselves into some of the war language that goes on in the scriptures and attribute it directly to us in certain ways. And because we don't have a theocracy, which is essentially a God-ruled government, we don't have that anymore. The nations are not just one nation. It's not just one people that rages against God, but all nations have some who are raging against God, and we also have those who are secure in God. And So the question that is to be asked is if the enemies of God are not just physical people from a particular nation that are against the people of God, who are the enemies of God presently? And so I believe to be in even more, but the three main ones, that we're, we're going to look at them today, is of sin, Satan and his demons, and death. And so, with each enemy, there is an attack upon us, starting off first with death, as we're going to look at later of Jesus conquering death for us, as we were slaves to death in fear of death. But now we can have confidence when we die in Christ that we will live again, that this is not the end, that we will go and have everlasting life with him. And so he has conquered that enemy, the second enemy of Satan and his legions and his demons. As we recognize something, especially in our Western culture, it's easy to just say those things that are just weird and strange. And that those are to just be isolated for crazy people. But the honest reality is, and I know this because of my own self, of I have my own skepticisms at times. I know the reality is I'm more on the weird side. That the reality is that the scriptures are replete with knowing that there are angels and demons and things in the spiritual realm that are far beyond our understanding. And so we see we have that as an enemy also, those who are aligned with Satan. And then our greatest enemy, the one that resides with us of sin, of how our flesh wars against us. The scripture paints this picture of the flesh and the spirit at war within us. And so we see in for us as the people of God, these are some of our enemies, the enemies that are raging against God. Where our flesh desires to roar up and rebel where Satan and his legions desire to rebel against God, where death s- seeks to strike fear in us. We're going to hold there, and I'm going to speak about that at the end, of why we can have confidence. So let's go on to verse 7, and to so why we can have confidence against those enemies. So in verse 7, he continues by saying, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So because this verse is also in verse 11, I'm going to do half now and the other half at the end. So now here, speaking first with the Lord of hosts. So this title, of the Lord of hosts, and the hosts were of the angels, the sun, the moon, and things in the heavenly realm. They were saw as the higher things. And so essentially what the psalmist is getting at and the Lord being called by this title numerous amount of times, it is saying he is the ruler of all things. It is a very militaristic type of title of him as a warrior, of, of him as a God who rules over his army. And it's interesting, even as we think of Jesus, when he speaks of that if he wanted to, he could have called down legions of angels to fight on his behalf. We see even Jesus applying that title to himself, that he is the Lord of hosts. And so in that, that should establish for us his power and his ability to affect what he desires to do. That he has legions of army um, Willing and able to conquer and do at his bidding. And so for those who are against God, that should strike terror. Just imagine it a, a force that is so much powerful that you could not even imagine. And if he desired to destroy, he could without even wasting any time. But also for those who are with him, the comfort of knowing how powerful, how mighty, how much he rules over all things. And we find our peace and our refuge with the Lord of hosts. And so that's going to help us as we look at verse 8 and seeing what the Lord has done. So in verse 8, the sons of Korah say, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought desolations on the earth. Let's continue on with verse 9. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. So the psalmist calls us to do something interesting. He says, come and behold the works of the Lord. But the works of the Lord he's talking about are not normally what we would think of. We normally think of, come and behold how God has saved many. Come and see how he's had so much mercy, how gracious he is. But he, comes, he calls us to do something different here. He says, come and behold the desolations that he has brought. (laughs) And that should make us step back and realize who our God is. That he's not just cuddly and sweet. He's not always gentle. But for those who are his enemies, he will bring desolations upon them. And there's a power and a force in that. And there's a right fear that everyone should have before him, and we're going to see that in verse 10, that he is not a God who's just playing around and is just playing games, but he calls all to fall and bow before him. And why this is interesting also, as I said, I believe this is in the context of Second Kings is in Second Kings 18 through 19, and starting out in verse 35 of chapter 19 the story being in 1819, but the verse in particular being in chapter 19, verse 35, is essentially what the psalmist is calling them to behold. So in verse 35, after God has said he's going to do this, and this is how he does it, with his angel, as I spoke of him being the Lord of hosts. And so it says in verse 35, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians, and when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. And so here we get the psalmist, they're saying, come behold, this! this is a terrifying sight. This is death on a massive scale. This nation, this enemies of God who have come and propped themselves up as equal to and actually surpassing the Lord by saying he cannot help them. The Lord has brought desolations upon them and destruction upon this people, and he's calling them to behold this. And I know for some of us that can be uncomfortable because we only want to see God in the comfort and the peace and the joy. But he also is a God who will destroy his enemies. And we see also here that as he continues on, that he makes war cease He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariot. This is a complete destruction. It's not even a real fight. It's not as if there was a real battle, as if they could come back and attack and win. He destroys all their weapons, and he brings them to complete desolation. And he calls us to behold this, to stand in awe of our God, who fights on behalf of his people, who would not allow his people to be murdered and assaulted. Because as I said before, this happened to Israel, where they were in their idolatry and they were taken away. But God in his grace towards Judah, that he protected them and did not allow them to experience the same faith at this time. And so that helps us to transition now. After we've seen the desolations of the Lord, and we see what he calls us to do in verse 10. So in verse 10, it says, be still and know that I am God. I would be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So I thought this was kind of funny this week. Uh, in our home, we have like a little wooden placard that has this verse, and I did not realize until <laughs> it didn't hit me until I was preaching this today, and it just hit me how often you'll see that as a Christian bumper sticker of be still and know that I am God, and it's this sense of art, sit down and contemplate who the Lord is and enjoy, and though that does have its implications, but here the psalmist is getting at so much more of when he's saying, Be still and know that I am God. So I believe right here he's not just speaking to his people, but also to the enemies that are against the Lord. And so up on the screen, and this is the thing that I got from the pastor out in Clearwater, this This quote, and it was actually funny that it was actually in one of the commentaries that I just didn't realize it was there until he brought it up. And so it's going to be coming up on the screen. So it's a mid-17th century Anglican minister by the name of William Gurnall. And he has this great quote about how God is not just speaking to his people, but also to those who are against him. And it kind of breaks it down, and I thought it was really helpful. So it's a longer quote, so I broke it down into three sections, so we're going to go through them one by one. So the first one says, in reference to this verse, it goes, Faith gives the soul a view of the great God. It teaches the soul to set his almightiness against sin's magnitude and his infinitude against sin's multitude, and so quenches the temptation. So it begins off by, as we're looking at our finiteness, our sins, the multitude of them, that as we compare them to our God who is so much grander, so much greater, that as we talked about from the beginning of why we should not fear, of how we're able to know God as we study his word, that that should quench that temptation, that should bring us to stillness. And so he continues on. He says, the reason why the presumptuous sinner fears so little and the despairing soul so much is for want of knowing God as great. And so on the first end of those who rage against God, why they fear so little is because they do not recognize and realize who God truly is. They may be able to state facts, they may be able to even quote scripture, but they don't know. They don't know in their soul who he is and how great he is. And so out of ignorance and presumptuousness, they don't fear him as they ought to. And on the other end, For those of us who despair, who find ourselves wallowing in our sins and so afraid of everything that is before us, it's because we don't recognize of how great our God is that we have no reason to fear, that we have our refuge and our strength and he's our help in time of need. And so this be still and knowing of God on one end tells those who hate God, you don't know what you're doing, you don't know who you're dealing with. And on the same thing on the other end, for the Christian, you don't know who you have, you don't know who's protecting you, but trust him, know him, and find your comfort, your refuge in this God who protects us. And so as he continues on, as he finishes up, he says, therefore, to cure them both, the serious consideration of God under this notion is propounded as if he had said, Know, O ye wicked, that I am God, who can avenge, you, can avenge your own confusion. And again, know ye trembling souls that I am God and therefore able to pardon the greatest sins and cease to dishonor me by your unbelieving thoughts of me. And so as he gives the cure for both, for the one who rebels against God, who feels like they can say things like Sennacherib, who can say, who is your God to conquer? Who is your God? He is nothing. I will conquer you. Stop. Be still. Meditate upon who God is, and you will recognize that he is the only one that can give us hope, refuge, and strength. And for the Christian, as he says here, in our trembling of our souls, as Tim was going through the past couple weeks of the psalmist calling out, of despairing in his soul, feeling forsaken by God. God is calling us in this verse. Stop the unbelief. Stop not believing. Be still and know that I am God. Set those fears aside. Trust in me. Meditate upon who he is. And I thought such a perfect and beautiful example of this is in Exodus chapter 14. So as we know, the Israelites were freed from Egypt after God sending so many plagues upon the Egyptians, and then they come to the the point where they're at, the Red Sea, and during this time, the Egyptians decided to come after them. So we find ourselves in verse 10, in this beautiful picture of this verse, personified with the people of God. So, starting at Exodus chapter 14 and verse 10. So it says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So we see here their complaints. They're complaining, against, they're complaining to Moses about the Lord and why they could not have just stayed back where they end in, in their slavery. They're complaining that God is not going to protect them. And So then we'll see what Moses says to them. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And this is key, what he says right here. And you have only to be silent. So we see this, be still and know that God is working. Knowing God will save his people, that he will be their refuge And also, let's see at verse 18, that other end, as we said, what is God saying also to those who do not know him? So in verse 18, it says, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And we see God also being glorified in the nations of him saying, You will know that I am the Lord. You will know I am the one who has done this. I will be glorified throughout the earth. And so for the believers, for the people of God, it's this time of just stopping. As we're fretting, as we're fearing, as we're trying to figure everything out, it's this time of of just stop. Be silent. Meditate upon who the Lord is and find comfort in that. Meditate upon him being our refuge, being our strength, being the God of our confidence. That's what he's calling us to do. And so as he continues on, on the latter half of that verse, but going back into Psalm 46, he continues this thought of that, he, that they will know that he is God and that I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And so here we see this looking forward to a time where God will be exalted amongst all. And in Isaiah, I thought it was just just perfect how it fit together with this. So we're going to look up at a passage on the screen of Isaiah 45, 20 through 25. And as you're reading this and thinking about this, I want you to think about what does this also point you to? And we're going to turn to that passage after. So the first one in Isaiah chapter 45, starting in verse 20. So it says, assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who care about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And so as we read that passage of God saying how he will be exalted, that every knee will bow, that should remind us of a famous passage in Philippians 2. So let's turn also to Philippians 2 and see that realized in Christ. So Philippians 2, starting in verse 9. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we see this beautiful picture of Christ being exalted. Every knee bowing and exalting him as God. Every tongue confessing and proclaiming him as God. And so we see in this, be still and know that I am God. It's either we've done it willingly in this time and submitted unto him, or we rebel, we hate him, and we die in our sins. And we will still bow, but it will be in torment. It will be in recognition that he is sovereign over all things. And so he's calling us at this time, if you don't know him, if you have not bowed the knee before this God that we proclaim here today, he's saying, be still. Contemplate on who he is. Find your refuge and strength. Find your hope and your salvation in him. Don't continue to be incensed against him. Don't be, continue to be rage against him to find your hope and your comfort and all these other things. But know that he is God. And we see that realized in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to finish up with looking at Christ in verse 11. So as we continue now to verse 11, it says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So one of the first things that stood out to me as we look at the latter half of, of the God of Jacob is our fortress. I was wondering, why did he say either the God of Abraham, the God of Moses, or even by what Jacob's name was changed to and what the people of Israel were to be called, of even the God of Israel? And as I meditated upon that, I realized that that was not by accident, that there has some theological implications here. So, why I said, why did he say Abraham or Moses or even Israel as a title? Because Abraham is the father of faith. He has a more beautiful picture in the scripture of who he was. Even though we see his faults and his failures, he is held up as a good example of faith. Or even Moses of the covenant being the one who led the people out of Israel. But he chooses Jacob. And so, if you know the story of Jacob, he has a pretty messed up history with just the way he's gone about with people from his beginning off with grabbing the heel of his brother, and that's where his name comes from, as a supplanter. He grabbed the heel of his brother as being the second born while they were coming out of the womb, and that's how the scriptures tell us of it. And it continues on, he and his mother conspired to steal the birthright from his brother Esau and also deceive their, fa- um, their father. Then you also see him fleeing into the wilderness to get away from his brother who's coming after him. And we see this continuous things about Jacob as not the greatest example. But why I say this is so important and interesting that this is a title that's used is because it reminds us that God covenants with the flawed. That he's not just the God of those who seem great and have a glorious reputation, but those who are flawed, who are sinners, who are cheaters and how he transforms them. And so we see in here the the God of Jacob also a continuous theme to the scriptures of between Jacob and Esau is that God chose to love Esau, love Jacob, but hate Esau. And so we see the God of election even being seen here. That is God who chooses his people and draws them unto himself even with their flaws and failures. How he still remains their God. What's even more amazing right here is that This is a title that God uses for himself, that he chooses to be identified with such a flawed man. And Hebrews 11, when we'll have to turn there, especially when we look at verses 13 through 16, it talks about the people who were traveling, and it talks about them desiring a better home, and it says that God was not ashamed to be called their God. What an amazing thing to be able to say, and that we can say if we are in Christ, God is not ashamed to be called our God that he enjoys that, being called our God, to be identified in that way. What a beautiful thing it is that we see here. And we know the only reason why that we can call God our God and he enjoys being called our God is because of what Christ has done. So as I alluded to at the beginning, as I talked about these enemies of God, these enemies of God's people, And why we can have confidence that they cannot defeat us. That we can have protection and refuge in what Christ has done. And so there's two passages that I want us to look at. And the first one being in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 15. So in Hebrews 2 in reference to Christ. So it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery so why we can have confidence against death is because of what Christ has done the reason why we don't have to be slave to death or we have to fear dying is because of what Christ has done. He has defeated that enemy. As we were proclaiming earlier from Romans 8, this confidence, the super conquerors that we are in Christ Jesus. So we have confidence in Christ that we do not have to fear death because he has already defeated it. So now let's look at the second one. So in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And so it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses, And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So we get two things here as we see him conquering. The rulers and authority, both physical and spiritual, he has conquered. And so we have no need to fear Satan. We put our trust and our protection in Christ. He will defend us. He will deal with these battles. That's where we should put our hope and our trust And Even as we look at Paul in 2 Corinthians, as we see him warring and battling with this thorn in the flesh, it's so beautiful that he doesn't say that he went to go after it. But what he did is he sought God to relieve him. It was God that was going to protect him. It was God that was going to give him strength and hope. And that same thing for us, that we don't have to fear the spiritual because of what Christ has done. And most importantly, our sins, our flesh, the thing that brings us down so low so often, that this God of Jacob, the one who covenants with flawed and broken people, that he knows our frailties, He knows what we deal with. He knows the flesh that desires to roar. And he says, I've defeated that already. You no longer have to submit to the power of it. You have freedom in Christ. He has nailed that to the cross. And that is what we proclaim. That's why we can have so much joy and so much confidence is because of how great our Lord is. That we'd go to this extent. That he would die that type of death to be nailed upon a cross for our sins, for our failures, for our shortcomings. And we praise him and worship him for that. So as we end off, we're going to get ready to sing in a moment A Mighty Fortress. And So if any of you know about The Mighty Fortress, it's a song, a a hymn that Luther had wrote. And so when Luther wrote it, it's is not sure of the timing, but Luther, and he wrote a lot about his times of depression and just going through a lot of difficulties as they were going through this time of the Reformation. And what's so beautiful about what R- Luther would do with his good friend and fellow reformer, Philip Melanchthon, is that when they would go in these times of difficulty, when they felt like the Catholic Church was coming against them or beginning to gain steam again, and they felt like they were in a hopeless endeavor, Luther would tell Philip, let us go and sing the 46th Psalm. And so he, sound, he used the 46th Psalm consistently as a use of, to find triumph and comfort in God in the midst of difficulty. And so that's the same thing as we sing this song, as we get ready to. I want us to sing it loud. Let us have confidence and proclaim that our God is a mighty fortress. And that he is our confidence, that we can put our confidence in him, not in ourselves because we are frail and fickle and will fade away. But, but he has done all that we could not do and he will sustain us till the end and we praise him and worship him for that. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the confidence that it breeds inside of us. That we can look upon you, our great God, our God of refuge, strength, and very present help in time of need. And know, Though our heart may fail, that we may despair within ourselves, that because you are in the midst of us, because you are the Lord of hosts, the God of Jacob, who cares for the broken, we can have confidence that you will protect us, you will be our refuge, and you will not allow our faith to fail. Though we may go through times of trial. May we we go through times of difficulty. May everything around us be shaken. We stand upon this firm foundation, our mighty fortress. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done. That you have defeated our enemies. You have released us from their power. That we no longer have to be a sin, a slavery, in slavery to sin, to Satan, to death, we can freely follow you because of what you have done. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, and I pray for each of us that we may sing this song aloud. May we proclaim it aloud that you are our mighty fortress. And we thank you for this, Lord Jesus. Amen.